0: ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald.
1: Good afternoon, this is Chickie Fitzgerald. It is Friday, May 9th, 2014, and I think it's Spring is already gone here in Florida. It is already blistering hot, but I am not going to complain because uh, I know that some parts of the country are still very, very cold, so I am blessed to be here. Uh, You have just joined the Executive Girlfriends group, and we have a real treat for you today a, a very different program than our normal uh, discussions, we have a guest, Christine Bader, who is the author of a book called The Evolution of a Corporate Idealist. And the thing that sets this show apart from uh, many of our others is Christine just has so many amazing stories to tell us, and I want to make sure that I allow her to do that over the course uh, of our discussion today. And uh, Christine, why don't I just have you start off by giving us a little thumbnail of you. you.
2: Sure, you bet, and thank you so much for having me on, and hello, everybody listening. Um, Let's see. Well, I'll start at the beginning of the story. I joined BP right out of business school, and I was a newly minted MBA, really idealistic, and convinced that business could be a force for good in the world. And so the book shares my nine years with BP working around the world, Focusing on the social and human rights and community impacts of some of b p s biggest projects,
1: well, you start the book uh talking about uh growing up uh and and uh being in New Haven and how you got exposed uh to British petroleum in the beginning and it it really had to do with hearing uh a talk uh by the then c e o of the company and really Marrying that back to your own idealism, which had come out of working in nonprofits and working in government, tell us just a a little snippet about that experience. You bet. So I got
2: to my first year of business school, and I heard John Brown speak. And as you say, at the time, he was the CEO of BP. And he had recently made some really bold moves. He had become the first head of a major energy company to acknowledge the realities of climate change and urge action. And this was back in the fall of 1998, right? There were still Mm. plenty of people living in denial that climate change was a reality. But he was... A lot of people said he was breaking away from the church of big oil, right, and becoming the first guy to really take a stance and say, listen, we've got to do something about this. I found that incredibly inspiring, and I thought, okay, this is somebody I want to work for.
1: Well, you know, I've I've had some similar experiences of not really even caring what the people do, but thinking man, you know, what I wouldn't give just to work <laughs> side by side with them. But in this particular case, he was not only idealistic, but he oozed, you know, his dry British wit, as, as you uh, indicated in the book, and he had worked all over the world in different jobs. And, you know, that is a really attractive thing to a, a young MBA, even one that had the business experience that, that you already had under your belt. Yeah,
2: that's right. I mean, I I had a little bit of an international travel bug and but really more importantly, I was interested in the role of business in society. And I had worked in nonprofits, I had worked in government, but there was this big chunk of the world that I just didn't understand, and that was the business world. So, I realized that, you know, BP had a real international global footprint. And my first assignment with the company, I spent my summer internship between my two years of business school in London headquarters and then went straight out to Indonesia, and that was a real eye-opener for me.
1: So when you were studying, were there any aspects of your MBA that that had you really focusing on the international business opportunity? Sure. I took some courses.
2: I, I think there was one course actually called International Business, But it wasn't like it is today. Again, this was in 1998, 1999. There weren't courses on sustainability or corporate social responsibility like there are today. But again, that's what I was really interested in. So it was a little bit more indirect that I thought, okay, I'm going to join this company that clearly has big impacts on the world from both a social and environmental perspective. And this seems to be a company that's really thinking deeply
1: about it. Well, and I love the story in, in your introduction about falling in love with that BP, Yes. And and that the company loved you back. It gave you all this amazing opportunity, which we're going to talk about uh, some of the various stories as you moved around the globe with them. But you end uh, your introduction with talking about how how big oil broke your heart, and so I, I want to make it through that story. But let's start off uh, with with talking about your first assignment after you left headquarters. And, and Chapter 1 in the book focuses on Indonesia on the front lines.
2: That's right. And so when I joined BP, I understood conceptually what the company did, right? We keep the cars moving and we keep the lights on. Right. But it wasn't until I got out to Indonesia, and not just in the capital city, but I actually got out to one of the project sites that I saw, oh, this is what we do. So I went out to West Papua, which is a province at the very eastern end of Indonesia. And my first journey there was really, it was quite something. So I took an overnight commercial flight from the capital city, Jakarta, to the province, West Papua, but then still had to take a very small seaplane another hour or so, and then a helicopter another 45 minutes the rest of the way into sight, And as we were approaching the project site, there wasn't a lot of sign of human settlement, just very dense rainforests, uh, occasional flocks of birds bursting out of the trees. And then on the horizon, I could just about see the exploration rig. This project was going to be um, a very big gas field and that's where the gas was. And BP was going to build an onshore plant to process the gas so that it could be shipped out and used to power power plants. Right. Uh, it was a liquefied natural gas plant. So but descending into that project side, I'd never been in a helicopter before. So mm. when I started to get really sweaty and uncomfortable, I thought, okay, well, you know, it's hot and it's kinda loud in here and this is uncomfortable. I'm wearing all the safety gear. But I realized that my discomfort was not just physical. And I had seen the sketches of what this complex was going to look like, you know, like a big, modern, shiny, gleaming industrial complex. And I was mentally imposing that on this relatively, not totally, but relatively pristine site below. And to be honest, Chickie, I started to get kind of ill. I thought, Oh. oh, This is what we're doing here. But luckily, the reason that I was out there on that trip was I was bringing in the other experts in the company on social and environmental issues. And we stepped out of the helicopter, and I was standing next to one of the vice presidents for health, safety, and environment at BP. She saw the distress on my face, and she said, listen, that's why we're here.
1: We're going to get this right. Mm. And and did you? I mean, you know, it was interesting to me that that project, and I'm probably not going to say this right, was called Tengu, uh,
0: Tengu. which
1: means uh, Tengu, uh, which Uh means strong or resilient in Indonesian. And you know, I'm I am presuming that you found that the Indonesian people were actually strong and resilient. (laughs) <laughs> and and yeah. that they understood that you know while there would be some sacrifice that, that there would also be great gain uh in the way of jobs etc that's right that's
0: right
1: so so how did all of that get balanced at the end of the day
2: Well, you're exactly right in that the local people wanted the jobs, they wanted the economic development. This was a place that had been really neglected by their national government. So there wasn't a lot in terms of infrastructure. There weren't a lot of roads. There weren't a lot of schools. There weren't a lot of health clinics. And BP couldn't really be in in the business of providing all of that, but hopefully what we could do was provide some jobs, but then also work with the government to say, okay, there's going to be some more development here, and the government now needs to step up and play its role as well, which is so important, right, because you get in a lot of these situations where companies are asked to step in and do things that the government is supposed to be doing, and that's not desirable or sustainable. An oil company doesn't know how to run a health clinic,
0: (laughs) right? Right, right. But hopefully
2: that's part of what we could bring to the area. So we put a lot of resources, of time, of money, of staff, including myself, into trying to assess and manage some of the social issues around this project, like making sure that people's livelihoods weren't impacted negatively. And if there were negative impacts, if we could help train people in different kinds of jobs, the jobs that would service you know, our project there. So on the whole, I have to say it went pretty well, but I wouldn't be so naive as to declare victory because BP (laughs) is going to be there for, you know, 30 or 40 or more years. And it's not entirely in the company's control the way that this turns out. And that's part of the challenge of doing this work.
1: Well, one of the things that struck me about this particular chapter of the book is, is you bring up... Uh, a really good point that I think most college students, and I dare say uh, most uh, uh, instructors uh, at a college level, don't really understand how to truly prepare you for business. Mm-hmm. So here you were using some of your MBA skills of crunching mm-hmm. data,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: you know there really wasn't a clue about what real business people did. And particularly out in a field job like this where there's a lot of and I'm gonna use the term green field and I mean you've just talked about you know literally looking down and, and seeing green mm-hmm. and then, you know, thinking about it being wiped out. But, you know, going from literally a blank sheet of paper and a concept and drawings uh to actually seeing it play out and you know, they're just I, I talk to my kids about this all the time that, you know, college you know, you get a lot of good information, but it doesn't prepare
0: you for life and <laughs> no. business.
2: No, that's for sure. And a lot of the people who I interviewed for the book, and I guess maybe we should just step back and say that the book is structured around my story, but what I wanted to do was weave in the stories and reflections from lots of other people who are working deep inside big companies on sustainability, on corporate responsibility, because I realized that we face so many common challenges and that there are so many common themes in our work. And one of them was exactly what you just talked about, which is that for some of these issues,
1: there's there's no road map right and you know it's interesting cuz i i certainly uh went a totally different direction in my career. And and I actually was a college dropout. I went to college and I I wrote a paper in my first English class in first semester about the value versus experience versus education. And you can guess what I did. I went home at Thanksgiving (laughs) and said to my parents, I think I should drop out. And, you know, they looked at me, smiled and said, well, we'll support you in whatever decision you make, because that's, the way that they were, yep. uh, of really teaching us that we could do anything that we wanted to do. Yep. And it, it's funny, because I ended up going into the travel industry not on purpose, but uh, and I, I don't need to get into the story of that right now, but um, about 10 years later, I got into the joint ventures group. Uh, I worked for a division of American Airlines uh, that sold technology, and we had just gotten finished as as a company doing a big deal in Australia and New Zealand. And they had, you know, been able to command million-dollar license fees, which, Mm. you know, in that part of the world wasn't that big a stretch. And then I went into Latin America trying to charge those same, you know, Mm -hmm. license fees in Mm -hmm. countries that probably didn't have that as their gross national product, you know. And, right. and uh, you know, I used to go to cocktail parties telling people that I raped and pillaged the third world for a living.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, I came from a long line of missionaries, so that was like this uh, kind of hanging my head and, and shaking my <laughs> head uh, about, you know, what I was doing. But,
0: uh-huh. Uh-huh.
1: You, you know, and, and there there is that fine balance. So, so you know, as you came out of that experience in Indonesia, in fact, what was the catalyst for moving on to China? Was it just another opportunity, or was your work your work really done there? I know BP's work won't be done for for decades.
2: Yeah, it, we had finished this particular phase of the project which was i came in at the point where we were really doing a lot of assessing a lot of studies about well what is our social impact going to be on this community and so part of my job was to bring in lots of experts from all over the world literally to help us assess um, what the risks were and to try to hire staff who were going to be there long-term and put in place some programs, set up some partnerships with non-governmental organizations to be there for a long term. So I was there for about two and a half years, and then it was time to move on. It was just the right time for me and the right time for the project. And so why China? Well, <laughs> that was a whole other adventure because what I really learned in Indonesia was I saw with my own eyes how important the community issues could be to the success of the project. This wasn't it wasn't pure philanthropy, right? This wasn't for the cameras. This wasn't sort of nice to have feel good stuff. We realized because there were plenty of bad examples in Indonesia and around the world of how if a company doesn't invest in good community relations, that can actually sink the project, right? So a community can start blockading the access road or start sabotaging equipment. And we wanted to see if we could do the opposite. And that's why that that project was so complex and so important to the company. And I realized in retrospect that that was actually kind of unusual. Remember, this was my first job out of business school. So I thought, oh, this is, I love big oil, right? This is just the way that it works. <laughs> I didn't realize that this is an unusual situation. And actually, what happened in my next job was something quite similar, which is that the head, the, the group vice president with oversight responsibility for Asia, called me up and said, Hey, we've got this similarly complex project in China. Can you come have a look? So I did. And there were some similar challenges, and it was a similarly complex and important project to the company. It was a joint venture. It was a BP joint venture with one of China's state energy companies, a 50-50 joint venture with a really important partner, but also with some really big risks. So we were going to be bringing in a construction workforce of about 15,000 people into a town of only about 30,000. Mm. which could be kind of disruptive. (laughs) I
1: think.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So, again, I was there to try to do some community consultations to try to understand people's concerns and let them know sort of this is what the project's going to look like and smell like and sound like and try to
1: mitigate some of the risks. Well, and and you talk about – different uh issues and and some you categorize as outside the fence issues. Yes. And you make a statement, uh, you know, something that you heard from, from uh a mining company executive that the problems with the community don't stop at your front gate. They don't stop at your doorstep. The community's problems are your problems. And I, I think that this is something uh, particularly having uh done joint ventures abroad myself. Mm-hmm. Um you know it it is so important to understand this and so many particularly us companies and i imagine the same is true of british companies
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh you know we just don't see uh the kinds of things that that local communities are fighting
2: yes yeah that's right and what's that what's that expression show me a 10 foot fence and i'll show you an 11 foot ladder so i think <laughs> yes. that you know the days of companies going into a place and thinking that they can just put up a fence block out the world around them those days are gone, right right and And exactly that quote in the book is one of my favorite that the that the problems of the community are the company's problems as well,
1: right so what was the chief learning that you took away from the the China experience? My main takeaway
2: from from living and working in China was that I was going in with these assumptions about how to make the case for the work that I was doing. So I went in there thinking and saying, okay, we're going to protect the human rights of the workers and communities. And that kind of fell flat. <laughs> you know, I mean, I didn't get thrown out of the country A little or anything. too lofty, perhaps? A little bit. And people just looked at me like, what are you talking about? Right? And so then I tried, well, these are the standards that BP uses around the world, and we're going to use them here. And you can imagine how that came off, right, in a joint venture that just came off as incredibly arrogant. So I finally had to shut up for a while and really listen to what motivated people, what drives them, what they're worried about, what they need help with. And finally I came back with, okay, I understand that you guys want this to be a world-class model project. If that is the case, these are the standards that world-class model projects use so we have to use them here. And they were like, oh, okay, why didn't you say so? (laughs) (laughs) So my takeaway there, which again was a theme that a lot of people who I interviewed talked about, was that one person said this nicely, actually, that I quote in the book. He said, you know, those of us who have been doing this for a long time, we used to think we had to evangelize. We had to convince people. If only they could just see the world the way that we do. Our jobs would be done. And he said, We've realized that just doesn't work anymore. You know, we need to sit and listen to people and frame how what we want to get done supports what they need to do. And then they'll have ownership of it and then it'll work, right? Just basically. Well, you know, it takes
1: many of us our entire careers to learn that so for you to have learned it so early on i think had to make it easier for you to take the next step and and uh, i don't know uh it's unclear from the book whether you went directly from china back to london i
0: did but the next
1: part of the story is you know setting the tone at the top and uh one thing i wanted to ask you though before we go on is were you single all this time i mean i know now you have a husband and two kids but were you single
2: I was I was and and <laughs> I can see where you guys are, that it made it much easier for me to hop around the world like that. Yes, I was single at the time.
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah, and almost my entire uh international part of my career I was either single or childless, and, and it made it a lot easier that I worked for an airline because when my husband and I got married, he could actually hop on a plane and come with me very inexpensively. <laughs> okay. uh, you right. know, those were back in the days when there were uh, actual employee fares that made sense. Right. Um, right. Right. So, So you went back to London, and then what happened?
2: So I went back to London, and I did another sort of more traditional MBA job for a little while doing spreadsheets. But then the group vice president for strategy and policy development, who I had worked for during my MBA summer internship, asked me to help him out, and I gladly did. Um, And after a little while, he asked me to focus on human rights. And by his own admission, he didn't really know what that meant, but there seemed to be a lot of debate going on about what is the responsibility of a corporation like BP for human rights. So he basically said, listen, go figure out what all this is about (laughs) and let me know if we need to do anything differently (laughs) so that was that was my job I uh, spent about a year working with people around the world who are working in difficult places like I was so in Azerbaijan and in Angola and in Russia and my former colleagues in Indonesia and China just understanding well what are your human rights challenges and issues and how are you addressing them and are we learning from each other are we sharing or are we reinventing the wheel which was what was really going on and then externally i was getting up to speed on the debate over business and human rights and while i did that i came across a un united nations initiative that was meant to create international standards for companies on how they should be thinking about human rights and it was led by a Harvard professor who was handling this so brilliantly. And you said at the beginning, Chickie, that there are a couple of people, right, who you've come across and you've thought, I want to work for that person. Right. And this is exactly what happened with that UN expert. I just saw the way that he was handling both the politics and the substance of his job, and I thought, okay, I need to, <laughs> I need to work with this guy. So mm. I created a part-time you know pro bono project to support him with about 30% of my time and then that kept growing and growing and growing until eventually I left BP to work for him full time
1: Oh, okay, so by that time you did leave. And, you know, I know you went to New York uh, during that time frame. Mm -hmm. So in in working with the United Nations, uh, and and the chapter is actually called Creating Ownership, so instilling what you had learned, actually getting people to take ownership, because, I mean, you can create an environment for people to take ownership, but until they step up, uh, you know, clearly it doesn't happen. So so what, what happened during that time at the United Nations for you? Yeah, so that was all about, again, trying to clarify what are companies'
2: responsibilities for human rights? Are they, are they kind of like governments, like they have all the same responsibilities, or are they really not? So the UN expert who I was working for embarked on six years of global consultation, holding meetings around the world, that involved company representatives, government representatives, campaigners, and just trying to understand, okay, can we get some consensus here?" Right? Because the debate was so polarized of some human rights campaigners saying, "Listen, companies are so big and powerful, they have lots of responsibilities." And then some business lobbying groups saying, "Hang on a second, like governments have responsibilities here too." and just nobody could agree on anything. And so the guy that I worked for, he part of the reason that I really wanted to work for him is that I would see him in these very contentious debates, right? right? And he's one of these guys who doesn't say a lot over the course of the day. But then at the end, in his summary, he just really wisely and cleverly would play back a little bit of what everybody said so that they mm. felt like, yeah, he heard me. And I own a little piece of that. And now I'm much more likely to support whatever he comes up with going forward, even if I don't agree with everything, but I know that he heard me. So it was a really fascinating experience. And the end of that, the end product, was a set of guiding principles on business and human rights. So it sets out some guidance for governments on what they can be doing better to protect people from human rights abuses linked to business. And it sets out some guidance for what companies can be doing. So spells out what human rights due diligence looks like, because every every company does due diligence of some kind. And it's just saying that human rights needs to be folded into that. Right. So it was a new new international standard that had a surprising amount of support from all corners again because of that ownership.
1: Well, you did that you did that legwork in a really important way. So so here you were you you knew that that John's mandate was was coming to an end and you all ended up kind of going your separate ways and and mm-hmm. what that translated to was you didn't have have a a, a job moving forward. <laughs> By that okay. time I think you were married, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. You, you actually had a little bit of a life of your own hopefully outside <laughs> of, of all of this uh gallivanting yeah. around the world.
0: Yeah. Um
1: so so then it you know I'm I'm looking at the timeline and so now it it is uh time for the BP uh disaster.
2: Yeah. So the Gulf of Mexico. That's right. That's right. So in 2010 the Deepwater Horizon rig exploded in the Gulf of Mexico killing 11 workers and wreaking havoc, right, environmental and economic havoc all around the Gulf and beyond. And for me, that's what really compelled me to write the book because that BP that emerged in the aftermath of the disaster as this reckless, inept, callous, risk-taking place, it simply didn't resemble the BP that I had loved. Right, Right, and so this chapter is called
1: Corporate Idealism in Crisis.
2: Exactly, and so I just couldn't reconcile these two BPs, right? And so that's what really made me question everything that I thought I'd learned about business during my nine years with BP, and that's what pushed me to start talking to lots of the other peers who I've gotten to know over the years, people pushing for safer and more responsible and sustainable and ethical practices deep inside some of the world's biggest companies. And I started to talk to them about what happened when their companies really deeply disappointed them and something went wrong on their watch. And how did that make them feel and how did they reconcile that? So that's what that chapter is all about. It's that exploration, and that's what really compelled me to write the
0: book.
1: And, and so what, what did you learn from the people that you talked to? And I'm, I'm assuming that you also talked to your former colleagues at, at BP.
2: Yeah, for sure. And one of the big punchlines for me was realizing that this work is incremental that if you're going to choose to work in a big company on some of the toughest, thorniest issues really right at the heart of globalization, it's going to be slow going, right? And, and of course, that sounds obvious now. But, again, I joined BP right out of business school, really idealistic, right. convinced that business was a force for good in the world, and that I was going to change the world.
1: Right. So, well, and, you know, the interesting mm-hmm. thing, and I, I told you before we got on the air, you know, I, I've got a personal connection to this particular part of the story yeah. because I work in the travel industry,
0: right. and
1: I had just come off of a spectacular business failure. I had raised $7 million, $6 million of it was from an investor, lost it all, and was just trying to come out of my own personal economic crisis when the Mm. country's economic crisis happened. And then I finally got a consulting job at Kennedy Space Center at -hmm. the Visitor's Complex, helping them with their marketing plan of increasing tourism to Florida. And Mm -hmm. then the BP oil (laughs) (laughs) spill happens. And, of course, tourism to Florida, real or imagined, dries up because everybody's imagining you know the, the beach is all covered with black which mm-hmm. actually didn't happen in our right. part of Florida. I right. live in Tampa
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and of course Kennedy Space Center is on the other coast where the right. oil couldn't have possibly <laughs> gotten around uh, to that part of the coast. But nevertheless you know the corporate executives of BP never thought about Chickie Fitzgerald in Tampa, Florida, who, just having come out of this crisis, I finally have a consulting job, and it disappears. And we ended up having to file bankruptcy that summer. Right. And the funny thing was, a year or two it must have been about two years ago I get a call from my banker who says, "Well, I've got this attorney in my office, and you know he seems to think that you should be filing for the BP money." And I'm like, "No way." No way, and of course, as I looked deeper into my own financial situation and looked at the adjacency of that ac- action uh, of what happened in mm-hmm. in the Gulf, I realized yes, it had impacted my life
0: mm-hmm. and
1: and I never actually even thought about it at the time you know when when it happened, so you know this whole issue of corporate idealism. And, and distancing yourself in, in crisis. And, and you've got, you know, a section of the book that talks about how, you know, crises happen all, or crises, I guess, mm-hmm. it's not crises, um, you know, happen all the time in big business. This mm-hmm. one happened to be highly visible.
0: Yes.
1: Um, but, you know, how do you recover? And, and how do the people inside regain that idealism? Because you can't continue, um, you know, surrounded in cynicism.
2: No, no, you're right. And it's really tough. It's really tough. So I guess there are a couple of things. I mean, first of all, it's fair to say that some people don't and leave. And that's fine, right? I mean, part of the journey of the book and of all the people I've talked to and of all of us in our lives, Chickie, and everybody in your network, we all have to realize when it's time to make a change, right? And that it's fine to do that. It is perfectly okay right. to say, you know what, this is not working for me anymore. i got to go. And that's fine. So some of the people who I talked to in the book did just that. Um, But, you know, some people stay and stick it out. And sometimes a crisis, the silver lining, even though these disasters are, you know, they're horrible and lives are lost and there is no undoing that. But hopefully what comes out of it is a serious willingness to change and to do things differently and to listen to other opinions, right, So, there could be a real opportunity, but one of the challenges that I talk to, that I talk to a lot of people in the book about, is that once the institutional memory of a crisis fades, people start looking around and looking at you and your headcount and your budget and going, wait a second, what are you doing here? (laughs) Nothing bad has happened. Like, do we really need you? And the people right. I talked to in the book were like, hello, like, yes, nothing bad has happened because I am here doing what I'm doing,
1: but no one gets rewarded for something that doesn't happen. Right. Well, and I think it's interesting. I mean, you, you end that previous chapter talking about how corporate idealists have to keep working toward both that incremental change, which, you know, quite frankly, is not very satisfying, mm-hmm. but but they keep reaching for the transformative change, and they've got to have that persistence and confidence and, as you point out, this strong community of peers. So as we wind down into the end of your story, and I mean, actually, this is not the end. This is actually the beginning, because the (laughs) next thing, as if all of that wasn't enough, you gave birth to twins who I guess now are, are nearing two years old, right? Yeah, they're 20 months Oh my gosh! So yeah. so now we've got a new kind of idealism.
0: <laughs>
1: but but you, t- I, I have to read this this uh, first paragraph of chapter six. So in yeah. September 2012, I gave birth to a healthy set of twins. Just. Over six weeks later, I managed to take a shower, put on a clean set of clothes, two matching shoes, and take the subway to Midtown Manhattan for a reunion of my corporate idealist family. And for those of us who have had children, uh, you know, we can like so relate. Although uh, I did not have twins, I actually was pregnant with twins, and the second one uh, never never managed to uh,
0: uh-huh.
1: to win out in the womb. So uh, I, I had just one. But uh, so. So here you were, you know, a new mom, uh, probably completely and totally sleep-deprived, <laughs> and you're getting back together with all of these uh, colleagues who had been going down this same path that you had.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, so what happened next?
0: Well, I have
2: to say, Chickie, I mean, I, you know, I mean, you, we all know how hard it is when you're so sleep-deprived to, to think about anything, but I knew I couldn't miss the opportunity to see everybody, and this was the annual conference of an organization called BSR, Business for Social Responsibility, that I've been part of for a long time, and I, I work with them as a human rights advisor now, and their annual conference is like a family reunion to me, mm. and I have to say that having kids, if anything, strengthened my resolve to do the work that I do, that to me there is there is very little that is more important than making sure that the world's biggest companies are considering their impacts on people and on the environment and that we're all doing everything we can to make those impacts more positive there is nothing more important so there's very little that can haul me away from my kids but actually this work is for them as well mm. so
1: so did you write the start writing the book after you had the kids? <laughs> oh my gosh! Started, I'm even more impressed now.
2: I started writing it before. I mean, when I was in Indonesia <laughs> and China, I was writing emails home to friends and family about what I was doing. This was before blogs or right. blogs, right? And people just found it really interesting. They didn't know that companies had people like me doing that kind of work. So right. I started to think, oh, maybe there's something in this someday. So I'd had bits of those first couple chapters. But then again, it was really after the Deepwater Horizon disaster that I thought, okay, this is a story that needs to be told just through all those conversations that I was having with other people. So I'd I'd written a good chunk of it before I had the kids. And then um, last year I I finished the rest of the book, and I was working on it pretty much full time. Um, But I was really deliberate about carving out this space for myself to take a break, and this was before I got pregnant, but really wanting to take a break. After a really intense nine years with BP and then a few more years on this United Nations initiative, I'd saved a lot of money. I was single you know, on a corporate expat package for a long time, right. and I wanted a moment to reflect on what have I done over the past 10 years and what do I think needs to happen next? So I'd carved out
1: space for myself to do this. Wow. Well, you know, I've been in, involved uh, Are you aware of an organization called Conscious Capitalism? Yes, sure, yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting because I I have been uh, as a consultant to the travel industry and and focusing primarily on strategy and growth. Um, the last couple of years I've been looking at the intersection of philanthropy and mm-hmm. and corporate life.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: and how do you get people to to think more broadly and and I haven't been on on the uh you know the same side of things that you have just because my work takes me a different place but mm-hmm. um you know it's when I I went to a conscious cap- capitalism luncheon in Dallas uh, mm. not long ago and and was just very impressed by um the way that they were taking uh you know the the issues of corporate social responsibility the pure issues but marrying mm-hmm. them with employee centricity and mm-hmm. and customer centricity which are things that i'm very passionate about and uh, just bringing that all f- full circle is is uh, just interesting that's that's why when yeah. uh, my uh, uh, my producer patty uh, told me that you were going to be on the show i was just so so excited because uh, <laughs> And I, I love how you ended your book, and I, I want to just share this uh, with our listeners because the epilogue of the book is the manifesto for the corporate idealist. Mm-hmm. So you know, as you're sitting and listening to this, whether you're driving down the road listening to iTunes or, or you're listening on, on Blog Talk Radio or you're one of our executive girlfriends group members, I want you to just mentally check uh, whether you or your company are actually thinking about these things. The first one is, what is good for society is good for my company. And again, I think we we can uh, get a little bit mixed up about that particular point. Uh, number two, the words "responsible business" should be redundant. I love that one <laughs> um, Number three, sharing the stories of the people in the communities my company affects is part of my job and you know that one, I think, because so many people are blogging about life and about their their jobs and their companies I think storytelling is such a key. And I I think that's Mm -hmm. why this book is so successful uh, at getting across these points because the material itself could be considered dry, like you Mm -hmm. going into China and saying, you know, we need to worry about human rights. They're like, huh? (laughs) (laughs) But as soon as you make it personal, you know, uh, then it gets across. Um, Evangelizing to my colleagues is not helpful. (laughs) Figuring out how my work supports theirs is and especially in joint ventures, as you pointed out, that's Mm -hmm. so, so important. Uh, Number five, the business case is important, and so is morality. Number six, leadership transitions and financial downturns are irrelevant if I've truly embedded my work. And, uh, you know, we didn't talk about financial downturns in this whole thing. You know, we focused more on on the events at BP. But, uh, you know, uh, would you like to comment on that one because we we didn't – uh, speak so much about mm. that.
2: Yeah, I guess you know it has to do a little bit with some of the philanthropic activities that you touched upon. The thing is that they've got to be core to the business, right? Because if they're not, if they're just a pet project of somebody, then they're the first things to go in a financial downturn, right? And it's a shame because then the communities or organizations that have come to depend on those donations – are left out in the cold. So the work that I was doing with BP was really about, okay, what are the community investments that very much support the business? And the projects that I worked on, it was very much about risk mitigation. It was very much about making sure that these big, important projects got up and running on time and were able to operate smoothly. And that kind of stuff can't go away in a financial downturn. It would just be poor management.
1: Right, right. let me just wrap up uh, with these last few points on the manifesto Uh, number seven all human rights are relative or i'm sorry relative relevant to my company number eight if consultation and collaboration aren't both frustrating and worthwhile i'm not doing it right (laughs) i love that one Uh, Number nine, transformational change is needed. Incremental change is good, too. But as I had mentioned to you, one of my greatest frustrations in my own industry is watching everyone just being consumed with incremental change
0: Mm. and
1: never really making the leap.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Number ten, the challenges we face are systemic and complex, but that doesn't mean I can't do anything about them. Uh, I think that's the most powerful of them all. Mm. Good. So so Christine, thank you so so much uh especially now knowing and and I I missed uh, the nuance of I knew you had two kids. I didn't know they were 2-year-old twins. <laughs> so uh I I just thank you so much for giving us a piece of your Friday afternoon. And again for those who have been listening, this book is called The Evolution of a Corporate Idealist When Girl Meets Oil. And the author is Christine Bader. Christine, how can people learn a little bit, I mean, other than just buying the book, which I I know that they can do on Amazon Mm -hmm. and other major uh, sources, how can they learn a little bit more about what you're doing and and follow your activities?
2: Oh, thank you. So ChristineBader.com is my website and it's just C H R I S T I N E B A D E R dot com and that has the easiest thing is a two minute book trailer, you know, video trailer about my book. I also gave a TEDx talk called Manifesto for the Corporate Idealist, which is on there. And you can also find all my writings. But I'm also on Facebook and Twitter and on all the usual places.
1: Okay, now you're you are truly my hero now because one of my goals in life is to give a TED talk. <laughs>
0: Well, Christine, no again,
1: I I hope you just have a wonderful weekend. I haven't finished reading the book, but but I absolutely have to make that a priority because it your stories are just absolutely fascinating, and and you know they they give each one of us uh, a little push to uh, to do what's right and mm-hmm. and to take the extra time uh, to make sure that we're challenging others to do that as well.
2: Good. Thank you so much, Chickie, and thank you so much for the opportunity to share my story with your community.
1: Well, we really appreciate it, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and take the recording off, and uh, we'll say say a proper goodbye after that. For those who have been listening, if you'd like to learn more about the Executive Girlfriends Group, it is simply www.executivegirlfriendsgroup.com, and we also have a Facebook group by the same name, so if you would like to join us, Uh, you can join us right there. Thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to The Game Changer Ideas Inspiration Innovation with Chickie Fitzgerald